0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your sensitive host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your stoic host, Shane. (laughs) Nice. We actually don't rehearse these before we start. We just sort of make them up on the fly, and so I'm always I'm not, I'm not sure what Shane is going to say, but I'm I'm always happy. So it always turns out well.
1: It, it always works out. It's a very smooth transition most of the time,
0: especially after Justin's fantastic editing. Yeah, so if you are just joining us for the very first time, welcome. We are a psychology podcast. We talk all things psychology related lately. We've been doing sort of a within house sort of mini series thing on applied behavior analysis if you've been following along with us through this journey thanks Mm -hmm. glad to have you here we are nearing the end of this little thing that we're about to do and i apologize in advance due to travel schedules and whatnot we have to record two episodes back to back which means we will not be able to address listener feedback before we record our final episode in the discussion on this series and i guess i realized i kind of i kind of skipped over the part that what the series is if if you haven't been following along that we have been talking about there is a controversy there's a discussion maybe that exists that is highly critical of behavior analysis from various angles so there are people who have a very anti aba stance there are people who have a reform aba stance and people who have a very very pro aba stance and there's a lot that's going on here, and what we've been tackling is is those people who have the, the critique of ABA and what the nature of that discussion is.
1: So this episode is not going to be any different. We are trying to, as we go through these, take measured and respectful approaches to these arguments. And I believe we've used the term charitable as much as possible to describe our approach to these. Both of us, just to kind of get it out there, we are both behavioral practitioners. We are folks who work in that space. So there is that inherent bias built into that as Two people who really, truly love the, the work that we do. And so what we've tried to do is try to set that aside as much as possible, try to set aside our own learning histories as much as possible, and really kind of analyze these arguments from as many possible sides as we could. We're not perfect. We haven't hit the mark every single time, but it always comes from a place, an intention of trying to accurately and fairly critique these arguments from every side with the knowledge that we have.
0: I like that you, you brought back charitable is that we wanted to be very clear that we were portraying those discussions as accurately as possible. So we're not trying to set up any sort of straw man arguments that we can then just tear down and look cool, you know? Mm -hmm. We wanted to really understand these arguments and these discussions and try and interpret them the best we can. And so we distilled what we were finding in places where these ideas were being communicated and sort of turned them into seven main points. And so our first episode, we talked about just sort of where this comes from and who's making these arguments and then we went on to talk about the experience that some people have that the kinds of skills and behaviors that people who go through an ABA therapy type treatment come out with might look ingenuine to the point and maybe even rote to the point of of looking almost robotic which actually that was that was the third episode the second episode what we talked about was The use of positive reinforcement and the history of punishment and behavior analysis What was our fourth one.
1: Our fourth argument was all about the idea of overcompliance and the lack of generalization around that. The idea that behavior analytic work could possibly teach somebody to overly comply with authority figures or with just every single demand. The next argument after that was discussing the idea of prompt dependency and how folks become highly reliant on environmental cues that are artificial In those behaviors that are reliant on them only occur in those particular circumstances. So that's what we covered in those last two arguments. We're going to tackle some interesting ones in the next couple episodes, I think.
0: Yeah, the first one here will be a shorter discussion, I think, although we've already spent several minutes just recapping our, our history here. <laughs> but today we're talking about this idea that and again, distilled down just into a few words, that therapists ignore the child's feelings, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, I guess just to jump right in with the description of what this critique entails, the argument here would say that many children or people with an autism diagnosis or other disabilities, just neurodiverse individuals, engage in these stereotypic self-soothing behaviors that are self-stimulatory in nature and often look or they might appear to some people to be weird, or at least they might be described as weird or otherwise inappropriate, or these individuals might express such emotions as crying or frustration, but that what happens in these settings is that therapists simply block those stimming, maybe self-calming behaviors and force compliance even when the child is is crying and clearly upset.
1: I've heard this critique from the day that I entered the field. Okay. This is not a new thing for me. And also, too, I think one thing that comes up a lot, the discussion is that very rarely behavior analysts talk about emotional well-being, basically never. And a lot of times I've heard the argument that behavior analysts don't even account for emotions within their their clinical practice or anything like that. So those are different arguments that I've heard kind of like wrapped up in this that we're going to try to unpack a little bit.
0: Yeah. So I think that more or less summarizes to the best of our ability to rewrite these in sort of succinct bullet points what the arguments are being made. One is that some of the emotional behaviors that you see in children that include this self-stereotypic behavior that might be self-soothing for a child is something that we either block or prevent or try and change or ignore sort of railroad over that. And then the other, as you said, is the fact that we don't discuss emotions, at least not to the satisfaction of many people, and also that we don't I guess, account for emotions in our understanding of behavior. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that makes sense. Okay. So if we've characterized that correctly, let's get into our discussion about what we would respond to with respect to this critique.
1: I think overall, this is more generally some kind of complaint about the kinds of behaviors that ABA therapists try to change or they work on or they target for intervention and the fact that behavior analysts don't talk much about emotions. But I think that's one part of this. The next argument is really about stereotypy specifically. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But specifically, this seems like a general complaint about what we're talking about and some of the languaging around kind of the goals of intervention within our practice.
0: Yeah, and and I'll start by saying that Because we don't frequently talk about emotions in our promotional material and in our scientific presentations, it actually does. That doesn't mean we don't consider them. It's just not a significant variable that gets a lot of our attention. And maybe that's what the criticism is: is that just doesn't get enough of our attention. But it's not not something that we say is irrelevant or unimportant and cannot be talked about within our field. It's just something that doesn't. It's not in the foreground. However, it is a topic that receives maybe less attention than a caregiver might want or might expect. And so I think we do consider emotions. We just don't talk about it very much. So the argument is not wrong about that part of it, that we don't necessarily talk about emotions very much. And we could likely really improve our communication if we were more willing to take on those topics in our communications. And I think that that's part of where they're coming from.
1: I think also part of this issue, too, is that behavior analysts are scientists and we are trained from the very beginning to look at observable and measurable phenomenon, stuff that we can describe clearly, stuff that we can get other people to describe clearly. And so as scientists within that space, we want our communication to be clear, to be objective. And as a matter of comfort, most of the time, our language is going to be like that, right? Because we're trained like that specifically to be able to describe phenomenon succinctly, clearly without a lot of fuzziness. Right. Yeah. But we are human and we know that we have emotions as a matter of fact, radical behaviorism does account for emotions. So there is an accounting of emotions and emotional responding within behaviorism specifically. And we also recognize that other people have emotions. We also care about the emotional well-being of the people we serve. We absolutely do, but it's not a thing that most of our interventions or curriculum focus on. It is something that is ever present though. And it's also not really an area of our expertise. So I think that's valid to look at like, you know, maybe we don't attend to it as much as people might prefer. I think also too, maybe within that, like, it's not something that when you look at like a psychological practice, like there is like a high attendance to that type of thing where a lot of people liken us to a psychological practice. Right. And it's not quite the same. And that's, that can be pretty jarring for folks too.
0: And oftentimes, we will work on sort of these specific sets of skills, these specific patterns of behavior, and these specific things that we're trying to teach for for these individuals to learn. And then we'll refer out to a therapist who has more expertise on emotions and that sort of thing. Sort of like, I love my dentist, and I think the world of him, but I'm not going to expect him to know how to help me when I have kidney stones. You know, it's not really in his wheelhouse to... And maybe he knows things about kidney stones. I really don't know. I've never asked, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but with what we do is that, like, we understand that emotions are part of behavior. They're part of the psychological experience. And it's not some place that most of us get explicit training. Some of us do. And, you know, then great. That's something that they'll be more prepared and willing to take on. But a lot of times we'll just refer out to another source because that's a place where we don't want to necessarily try and just dig in on something that is not related to the thing for which we were trained.
1: I think that point that you make here, I would wanna make a clear distinction on this. So I worked with an adult learner who had gone through some significant trauma. We had worked through some of his targeted behaviors that were a problem, verbal aggression that was getting him fired from jobs, physical aggression that was getting him kicked out of homes. We were working on the stuff while he was also going to a mental health counselor. When we reached our goals as behaviorists, you know, and we would talk to him about what was going on. We, he would vent about stuff and all that, and he would kind of give us some insight on what was happening with him. But by the time we ended the goals of behavioral services, he reported to me, I'm still angry about stuff. I'm still upset about stuff. At that point in time, he's vocalizing appropriately. He's communicating well. There's not much a behavior analyst can do beyond that, except for to refer to somebody who can do the counseling and long-term type of psychological practice that's necessary for somebody to kind of navigate that type of trauma. So we are accounting for that working collaboratively with that person and also ensuring that they're getting the expertise that they need. So that is one part of this. I think that's one side of it. That's like important to recognize the other side of it is, and we're going to touch on this in a second, the idea that while we are in sessions, we have learners that have emotional responses. They have emotional. Changes in that. You know, we work with learners that are happy, they're engaged with some reinforcers, they're engaged in some preferred activities. We have learners that dislike activities like engaging with academic tasks or completing activities of daily living. And within that, they're going to have emotional responses immediately to that context. So I think there's a difference between like contextual emotional responses versus like overarching, historically based, like learning history related emotional concerns.
0: Yeah, where you have sort of a systemic experience of emotions that would require a more intensive targeted intervention and not just managing the fact that they occur. I think that's a, that is a good distinction and I appreciate you taking that on. And there are some some behavior analysts who take on that level and some who are more willing to take on the more incidental emotions as well. And you know, I personally talk a lot about the emotions of the children I work with. Mm-hmm. I'm fairly comfortable speaking to their confidence and their finding, I guess, joy in what we do or finding frustration in what we do or experiencing anxiety in our sessions and maybe even as an outcome of those sessions. And that's things that where when that happens, then I I communicate like, I feel like we've created a situation where if a, your your child is experiencing anxiety, we need to change what we're doing here. Yeah. And immediately talk about that. And I, you know, I'm not diagnosing them as having any kind of anxiety disorder. Again, that would be something to refer out for. But I can at least change the context of what I do because I recognize that there's an emotional situation happening for that individual. And as you said, we are human, you know, it's mm-hmm. not something that we're just going to pretend isn't there. We need to be sensitive. And I think that at least in my experience, a, a lot of us are. And if, if you're not, then just be, have some other support to be there and available.
1: I would look at it like this. If I have a learner that whenever a specific context is presented and they immediately have like an angry outburst. Or they immediately start crying, or they're immediately emotional. It's like kind of like a display of some kind of like, if they can't communicate well enough, that it's a display of like that something is not preferred or it's not a great situation. Then I want to analyze what about that context is so aversive or problematic? Like, why is this context causing this problem? Because I don't want to do that to that person. Yeah. Like, I don't want the learners I work with crying. Like, that sucks. Just like I don't want my own kids crying. Just like I wouldn't want to make anybody cry. I don't want to do that to anybody, especially the people that are supposed to be in my care. Right. I think this is a clear designation too. Like I'm not targeting the crying as part of an intervention. Sure. What I'm looking at is what about the context is making this person cry and what can I do to prevent that from that person from having that experience or what can I do to make this experience better so that crying isn't necessary. Right. Yeah. And parents do this all the time. Like think about this for a second. Parents do this all the time. You have kids that are afraid to go into a dentist. They're afraid to go to a doctor. They're afraid to go on a roller coaster. So what do parents do? You comfort You provide explanation, you provide some kind of information about that to kind of clarify that person's expectations about what that context is. Like, I think of like my son going on a roller coaster and he's like, I don't want to do it. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. We're going to go upside down and fall out. It's like, well, okay, so here's what they do to prevent you from falling out. Here's expectations. Clarify the instructions, clarify that context. And now we see kind of where we go from there. Like, is that situation yeah. still aversive? So I think that there's some, some, some of that in there that maybe some practitioners don't do as well, I would say. Sure. And some that can do that do this really well. There's probably more people that do kind of an in-between that really take a look at what that context is.
0: Yeah. And, I, you know, when I was very, very early in my training, so I, I try to be extremely attentive when I see kids getting burnt out. Or getting frustrated or, or showing those other signs of other emotions. Because as I said, when I was very, very early in my training, I had a kid who was trying to communicate that to me. didn't have very much language and I forced him to work through his tantrum and I felt so terrible afterward that I cried because it was like, this was not, this is not how you treat a, another person and definitely not how you treat a kid with special needs who can't, can't advocate for himself. And so, yeah, like I think we want to be sensitive to those things and And I needed to be in that moment better about paying attention to what the the person was trying to tell me. And that's, that is, there's a level I think of training that comes with this of like, yeah, we have things that we are expected to do and we have duties we're expected to perform. We are trying to make a difference by following this particular intervention for which you have someone who oversees that individual's progress making decisions about that intervention. And like, when things aren't going well, like, don't just, work through it, like, you know, stop and figure out what needs to change. Just as you said, is look at what is the context that's being created here that we need to find a better approach. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it is, it, it is built in at least in part to the kind of practice that we can and should be doing.
1: And this is just ultimately another example of needing to ensure that there is some constant oversight in the therapeutic sessions and therapeutic relationships with these learners to prevent this kind of issue from developing. Right. Like this is where we need better training. We need better support in this space, but we also need to ensure that when there is that supervision, there is that oversight. There's a really great article that just came out that talked about compassionate care and supervision. Mm. That idea of compassionate care within this space, there is a movement towards a better, more attending to that within those spaces. But this is another example of where we can do better. I mean, it's not that we ignore or have ignored the learner's emotions per se it's that we can do better at attending to them in a more salient way in nowhere in any aba training or nowhere in any aba curriculum that we've seen does it say to ignore Emotions. I can't remember ever hearing that or reading that in any of those contexts. That, that, is, not, yeah, that not. is not what we are instructed. That is not what we're trained. As a matter of fact, we are trained. I can tell you like studying like the philosophy of behaviorism, specifically radical behaviorism, when you're kind of going through like all of that and the theoretical orientations, they talk about accounting for emotions and emotional responses. They just talk about that not being an, a satisfactory explanation for why somebody does something. And that is a, a really clear difference rather than ignoring we're saying this does not explain why this person does this
0: yeah so not that it doesn't happen just that this is is treated as a behavior it is a thing that that we do is we are engaging in an emotion we are participating in that emotion not that the emotion is a thing that rules us right and i'm sure that some people have the experience like oh but but some people are ruled by their emotions and without getting into it i think i would say it's worth looking at the context in those situations because what you, again, what you have is what is the context that is resulting in that emotion and that level of intensity. I will say though, and I think there's probably some people who are listening to this right now who are having this thought or maybe even yelling it out loud. I don't know (laughs) that sometimes individuals learn to portray certain emotions to manipulate the situation. Mm -hmm. And they learn how to adjust circumstances to sort of manipulate people to get what they want. We've all done it really. So we also just need to be careful not to teach these individuals that inappropriate outbursts and tantrums will get them what they want. So we just need to be paying attention to that sort of thing. So when kids learn that they can express extreme emotions to get what they want, and I've seen this escalate to extremely dangerous situations mm-hmm. that we, if we reinforce that behavior, then we're going to get more of that. You know, an example is like there was, there was a learner that I worked with who was constantly sort of escalating. And initially the parents would hold out and then it would get to a level that couldn't hold out anymore. And the kid would just increase the intensity to the point where he was jumping out of a car on a, on a freeway. And so it's always about teaching in context, right? Right. And so just to clarify that a little more is like, if a kid is like, we want to be paying attention to the circumstances in which it occurred, but if there is a kid who is like doing something very dangerous and then we reinforce that specifically, then that can escalate to something even worse. And so we want to just be mindful that providing comfort and support does not mean reinforcing dangerous behavior.
1: I think that's a fair breakdown of that because I, I mean, I've seen it too. Like I worked with a a family who the sister would get emotional and upset when she was told that she couldn't have something right, which was not a a proportional response to that. She was told she literally couldn't have any money to go to a movie because they, the family didn't have any money. Yeah. And the sister is throwing glasses and slamming doors and doing all stuff. Not a proportional response. I'm sorry that I can't attend to your very clearly. You're angry. Right? Yeah. But also, I'm. there's no comforting in that when you're just not hearing what I'm saying. But then the sister would also turn around a few minutes later and say, if you don't give me money, I'm going to set this learner off who this learner was very dangerous, like incredibly yeah. dangerous, like knocked mom's teeth out dangerous. So this learner was like, oh. My outburst didn't work, but now I can manipulate the situation to get what I want anyway. And it, it became an issue of that wasn't an emotional outburst; it was simply another way for them to get what they were requesting. So I agree
0: with that sentiment. Awesome. does it. I mean, not an awesome story, I guess. But <laughs> but to illustrate, but to illustrate that it's nuanced. Like yeah.
1: It, it does require context and training and, and all that stuff. Right. And ultimately, behavior analysts are not emotional support therapists. Right. Like. We can be better at attending to people's emotions. We can be better at attending to the circumstances which elicit certain emotions. Yes, I think that we both have landed on that, right? Like, we can be better at attending to those things and attending to the context that elicit those emotions, but we are not treating anger. We're not treating depression. We are not treating sadness or joy or any. We don't treat those things because it's simply not within our purview.
0: Agreed. Yeah. So I was realized I said, awesome. Cause I, I liked, I liked the, <laughs> the point you were making, but yeah, I appreciate <laughs> I, I, what saying. Like I was Yeah. Okay. I great. got you. make sure our listeners do yeah. too. Cool. Yeah. And so I think that's what we have to say more or less on, on, you know, how we treat emotions. We didn't necessarily address the stimming thing, but we're going to let's hold off on that because that's going to be a major part of our final discussion, which I think is sort of the culmination of the most substantive part of the underlying theme of this Mm -hmm. discussion is talking about that stereotyped behavior patterns that self stimming that sort of thing we will address that do you feel like we've covered what we got to cover today or do you have anything else
1: i feel like that covers this one pretty adequately i mean we're we're welcome to hear the feedback if it doesn't but i think i think this covers what we needed to or kind of what we thought were the main points with this one
0: yeah, if you have any feedback for us, please contact us at our email info at www.wwdpodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on the social media platforms. You can leave us comments and ratings and reviews on our wherever you listen to these episodes on the, the page that comes up there. And uh, yeah, I think, I think let's go ahead and go to some recommendations. Recommendations. Okay. I'm going to make a, this is sort of an odd recommendation, but this is something that uh, someone close to me sort of started. And this is this idea of the sort of daily exercise challenge. And it's not like one of those internet challenges where you do something dangerous or stupid, but what you do is you pick an exercise and then every hour on the hour through like sort of most of the hours of the day, usually like business hours type, you do that exercise. So for example, once we did push-ups. And then just did 10 pushups every hour on the hour, I ended up doing like 90 pushups, <laughs> which I never thought I would do 90 pushups in a day. And then did things like planks, holding planks, doing crunches, you know, various things that you might do and just, you know, set a small enough number that you can do it every single time. Just do it every hour on the hour. And it's like, I don't know, that's a cool way to find an opportunity to do 30 seconds of some kind of exercise you wouldn't normally feel like you found time time to do and then actually get enough reps in it for it to mean something so that's my recommendation
1: nice. I like that that's good I used to do that for like walks like every like hour I would get up and walk in like and stretch and stuff and do some yoga like every for like 10 minutes nice I mean it's honestly like I never felt better in my life than when I was doing that so I'm going to take your recommendation on this one Abraham I like it nice thanks yeah My recommendation is another band. I love bands. Bands are cool. Music is a great thing. And I recently rediscovered this band. I didn't rediscover them, but I just, I've been spending a lot of time listening to them. A few episodes ago, you heard me recommend Sharks Keep Moving. Well, the singer of this band, Sharks Keep Moving, went on to form another band called Minus The Bear. And they were a band for about 20 years. They only recently broke up, did a farewell tour and all that. So you'll never be able to see them live unless they get back together. Bummer for you if you're just discovering this band. However. What I really love about this band is that the other guitar player, Dave Knudsen, was in a metalcore band called Botch, if you're familiar with Botch. Really great, super unique guitar player. Joins together with Jake Snyder of Sharks Keep Moving, and they form this really wonderful band, this really cool indie band. And their discography is great. Every record they put out is fantastic. They do something new. They do something unique. They write some really cool, mellow, kind of fun, dancey indie rock stuff. They used to get protested by the Westboro Baptist Church for singing about drugs and sex. So, you know, if you're somebody who likes to be on the other side of it and get be on the side of being protested, then join the club. But uh, yeah, if you get a chance, Highly Refined Pirates is the record that I recommend for everybody. The entire record has a bunch of inside jokes about either Starship Troopers or about something to do with water. Every song has a reference to water. All the songs are very silly titled and they're just a great band. There's a lot of fun.
0: And I think, you know, we've recommended various sort of punk and metal and that sort of thing minus the bear, even though they have a metal guitarist is not that definitely not. They are very easy to listen to. <laughs> yes. A lot of electronic actually in there when I listen to them, I don't, I'm not familiar with the highly refined pirates,
1: uh, highly refined pirates, but yeah, no, it's all the same. Like if okay. you've listened to them, very electronic, okay. very like atmospheric, really pretty guitars. Like, I mean, it's very, very indie rock. Like if you like death Cab for cutie, you'll like this stuff
0: yeah this is great this is the kind of great thing you want to have on like when you're cleaning up around the house or you're i don't know just doing something where you want this really pleasant sort of background music on but i mean you can listen to it and like get really yeah. into it too you can be in your car and and that's totally totally your jam yeah absolutely I'm sure some people rock out to Enya.
1: yeah 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 somebody does somebody somebody's a big dido fan out there
0: <laughs> yeah exactly so all right I think we'll wrap it up there thank you so much for recording with me today shane thank you everyone for listening with special shout out to our patreons justine megan mike shauna and green queen if you would like to join that list of just the coolest people you can find out more about that by going to our patreon page there you'll be able to sign up for various levels of support as low as one dollar per month and on up from that the higher you go the more cool goodies and benefits that you get and you could even join just for like a month you're like well i don't want to I don't want to like do this every month, but maybe just throw you a little cash your way one time. That's fine. You'll get all the past benefits from doing so. Then you just won't anymore. And there's also a Discord server that we can give you access to. A cool little uh, community of people who support our episodes who then can chime in and and chat with one another and chat with us if we're online and look sort of like um, Slack, I guess, if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with that platform where you can sort of talk to anybody and there's various topics. But find us there find us on all the social media platforms email us about your comments thoughts questions concerns if you would like to tell me about a exercise or some kind of daily challenge you do i'd like to hear about that if you like to rec- recommend some indie electronic music shane would like to hear about that i would And we would definitely share these with our listeners and i think that's all i have so this is abraham this is shane we're out see ya
2: you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreoncom podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWDWWDpodcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes